0: hi everyone welcome to gradcast the official radio show and podcast with the society of graduate students here at western i'm here with a very close friend of mine and my roommate erlance Echeverria, from the basque country and he's doing a phd in philosophy of science the same field that i'm studying so we have chatted a lot about these issues uh and i'm excited so uh, I'm also joined here with my co-host,
1: Liam Clifford.
0: Awesome, and we're going to have a lot of fun. So welcome to our show, Ernance. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So Ernance, let us know, um, you want to know more about how you came to be interested in philosophy, philosophy of science, but also a little, a little about Basque Country and their culture as well. Uh, yeah, so in terms of how I
2: ke- became interested in philosophy, I took a class in philosophy uh, during high school. Um, and I really appreciate that we had a chance to get, to get a class in high school. Uh, but then when the time came for choosing a degree at university, I actually chose engineering. So uh, as an undergrad, I did my uh, degree on electronic engineering. And it was just when I finished that I was still like, liking things that do philosophers do and wondering what it looked like to do philosophy. So I enrolled in philosophy right after I finished. And ever since then, I'm like, well, this is really something I enjoy and I like doing. Uh, so that's how I got actually uh, into philosophy.
1: Very good, Lance. I, I must say, I have visited the Basque Country before and it's fabulous. Um, you know, seeing the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao was was mm-hmm. something uh, incredibly worthwhile. So, I very much appreciate um, where you're coming from. Now, in regards to where else you're coming from, there, there couldn't be more two separate things than engineering and philosophy. So, what was your catalyst for dealing with something completely black and white to something that dealt with the gray.
2: Uh, I, would, I think I would disagree with you. I don't think they are so apart from each other. And it was actually puzzling for me when I enrolled in philosophy, and first year you take a class on logic, for example, that's part of our curriculum. And so everything has to do with these and or connectives and truth, false, one, zero, And that's exactly what I did also in electronic engineering. Uh, We dealt with what's called logic gates uh, to create circuits. Uh, So an AND gate would be if it it has two inputs, if both of the inputs have a current or a voltage in it, uh, the output is also going to have. So it it works exactly the same way. Uh, But that's, I guess, more anecdotal, right? Uh, But I also think that they share a few things like um, analytic thinking, about things. Uh, there are other things they don't share, you write, right, like, of course, uh, philosophy is a lot more about writing and reading uh, text. Um, but I, I also think that they share a lot of stuff. And there's a famous case, in, in, in fact, that uh, a famous philosopher from the 20th century, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, he, he actually studied engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, then he got into a PhD on aeronautics. Um, and then just out of his interest in often, uh, on those topics, uh, he also got interested in mathematics, logic, and eventually in philosophy. So uh, you can see how these are somewhat related.
0: Well, yeah, that, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, I still get questions about philosophy and uh, I come from a background, a mathematical background I did my undergrad studies and did a major in mathematics Uh and initially specializing in mathematics. And yet I got interested into philosophy of math questions. Now you do something um, a little similar as well. Uh, You do philosophy of science, general science in particular. So tell us about what this field is about. And also uh, if you could sum up roughly what your research is about.
2: Sure. Um, So, philosophy of science, I I would say it's a relatively new branch of philosophy, uh, officially starting in the 20th century. And the way I like to think about it is bridging the gap between science and other related areas. Uh, It could be epistemology or the way we know things. It could be science and society. Uh, like how it relates to our policies, for example. Uh, that's something that philosophy of science is interested in. Or even things um, like ethical issues and science, uh, especially with some sort of research areas that involve uh, ethical questions. So it's, it's really uh, bridging the gap between science and many other areas that uh, probably scientists don't have the time or or the expertise to do. Uh, so it's I think questions that are lingering there and um, philosophers of science we usually just take those questions, try to answer them. Um so would you say, with some theories. Yes, go so ahead. So
0: would you say it's a shift in focus uh, and not so much in in almost a different kind of field, but it's just a focus focusing on different kinds of questions. It may be foundational questions, maybe methodological questions. And I guess this is where your research comes in as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. So um, you you would like to think about philosophy of science as thinking about science. So you are not doing science, uh, but you are looking at how science is done, how it is uh, even communicated to the public. So a bunch of different things uh, that are related to the scientific practice. the way this connects to my research um, is I'm especially interested in questions about methodology of science uh, that has to do with, well, different things about how scientists actually work, how they infer things about their, from, from their work. Um, I was, this summer I was working with uh, professor Jacqueline Sullivan and she, she's working in a very interesting research project. Uh, about how different scientific groups work together and end up having some sort of study published. And it's a collective endeavor that that they do. So it's really puzzling to see how uh, the sum of all these individuals working on a topic or or many different uh, people who are working in a lab, for example, a research group end up having uh, a single study out of that. So that involves a lot of people. And that involves a coordination between them, different beliefs, different inputs, and that all ends up having one result.
1: That's very interesting. I, you know, I've never actually thought about sort of reconciling the difference between Uh, developing these scientific conclusions, and then our ability to then apply it to the world around us. Now, we talked about how do we do science? You know, it seems like a relatively simple question to ask, but at least to anyone in a science background, the scientific method comes Mm -hmm. up. Do you mind just explaining to our listeners a little bit about what that is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So scientific method, uh, there are different models of how it works. But the traditional model or what we call the textbook model that you may learn in high school, uh, it starts with observations about the world, some facts that you collect, uh, and then you create a hypothesis out of that. Uh, So for example, you might uh, look at the sky, see these old stars, uh, the positions they are, the way they move, uh, and then you come up with a hypothesis for why they are in that position or how they move, what's the motion that are they going around something else, um, and so on. And then from there, you make predictions. So that's the second part of that theory uh, of, or that methodology. uh, And then you test those predictions in experiments. So, uh, you know, if you're just using this example of looking at the sky, during, during a period of time, we weren't sure how, how the Moon, the Earth, the Sun were related to each other. Uh, so for many years, we thought that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything else was going around it, right? Um, but once you hypothesize that we are going around the Sun and not the other way around, uh, then you come up with certain ways of testing that hypothesis. Uh, So, you know, maybe an eclipse could be an instance of that where uh, you can predict how it's going to happen. You explain how uh, the sun is going to be, or the earth is going to be casting a shadow on the moon and so on. So that's usually uh, what's called a hypothetical deductive model of, um, of method of the, as a methodology. Um, But I think that Oftentimes, um, scientists are more familiar with other methods that have have to do, which are also connected to this one. Uh, But for example, uh, Popper's falsificationism. Um, I'm not sure why, but that seems to have a lot of traction on scientists, Uh, which again, works in a similar way. You come up with a hypothesis and then you test it. And then you try to see whether what what you predicted is true or false. In an experiment.
0: Right, and so I guess sometimes people um, just sort of assume that there is the scientific method, and it turns out that that's, that's just not the case, and things are a lot more complex and messy at times, and there's n- nothing about a correct model necessarily of a scientific method. Uh, so that's pretty fascinating. I also read that you, you're working on Uh, other issues as well. For example, uh, the replicability um, crisis or Mm -hmm. replication problem. Can you tell us about this particular issue? Because I've heard of this issue arising in other fields as well. Right.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, This actually connects to what you were saying about having different methodologies in different fields. Uh, not, not every science has the same methodology. Um, so usually w- when, when I was talking about this method of hypothetical deductive method or falsificationism, uh, those are usually applied in physics, which uh, was a science which was getting a lot of results uh, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Um, but then interestingly, now we have sub-branches within philosophy of science. So you have a philosophy of biology, for example, philosophy of ecology. Right. So we have been uh, developing different branches to different sciences because we realized that actually uh, even the methodology could be different in, in, each, of those, in each of those specific sciences.
1: And I think that's I think that's an interesting point, because at least to someone who doesn't come from a science background, uh-huh. you hear the scientific method and you think it's this one all encompassing, I guess, formula in order to develop, you know, a, a, sci- a scientific factor or theory. I don't I don't know what the correct the terminology is, um, but it's it's sort of interesting how you're how you say that it's it's a lot more heterogeneous than at least meets the eye.
2: Yeah, that's right. We realize about that. Uh, but uh, as I think Yusef was pointing out, the problem of repli- replication in science comes uh, specifically in certain areas more than others. Which and it, ha- okay. it has to do with um, a really troubling thing, which is that up to 50% of the studies which are published in some areas are not able to be replicated by other research groups. So you have a study that um, could be coming to the conclusion that I know, um, maybe in social psychology that there's this thing about priming effects on people's beliefs uh, and there's a, a study about that. And then it turns out that other research groups have tried to replicate that study and they weren't able to get the same results. So that is the problem of replication that uh, Yusuf was referring to. And, and it's really a a big problem because when we're talking about the scientific method, um, one of the parts, one one key part of that is that we take those to be uh, public in a way that anyone can know about them. Uh, That's part of what makes them uh, available to everyone. And also, replication should be something that you would expect from a well-performed experiment, right? Uh, It's part of the reason why we trust science is that uh, we take the results to be true and that involves that they are replicable. But it turns out that in many areas, um, and that is again, maybe a problem that happens more often in in a specific science such as uh, social psychology, even sociology, um, economics, usually uh, with sciences that involve more interpretation of the results.
1: I think that's, and I, I just want to pick up on that point of rep- replicability. It's a very difficult word to pronounce. Right. Um, but what I'm, what I'm gauging from it is that it's, it's essential in the field in order to be able to do this. So when it doesn't happen, does this become more of a scientific problem or more of a philosophical problem?
2: I would say it's a scientific problem uh, because science tries, tries to get knowledge about facts about the world, uh, tries to identify different factors that influence something, if, if a drug works to cure something or not. Uh, so it's definitely about the knowledge that we have about science, right? Uh, it's just that philosophers have been those who have pointed out that there's a huge problem with replicability. And uh, and it has to do, again, with the trust we have in science. So you expect replicability to be something that is taken for granted for any study, right? Uh, but there are actually reasons why that is the case. So. Um, on the one hand, there are not many uh, experiments performed or many studies performed that try to replicate. And that has to do with you know, the incentives that come with doing another research versus doing some experiment or some, something that is, has already been done and you're just trying to repeat it. So of course, it's gonna be harder to get funding for that, that research. How are you gonna convince your donors that? Uh, that you just want to repeat something, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Same for publications. If you are trying to publish, and this is again, something that is really, uh, there's a huge pressure to publish in, in academia. Um, so it's unlikely to be published if your research doesn't really give some new insights. You just can say, okay, this was just a repetition of this. Uh, so there are f- again, like not a lot of incentives to do it from that point of view. And that I think makes the problem even worse.
0: Cool. Um, I think we have a good basis of what you do and the kinds of issues you deal with. Um, Let's go a bit deeper into a particular kind of issue that, that has really fascinated you for quite some time now. So you're dealing with different types of explanations in science. Mm -hmm. Uh, Normally we deal with what we call causal explanations. That's something that we're all very familiar with. For example, well, why is the uh, glass broken? Because someone threw a rock. The rock caused the breaking of the glass. Um, So that's the timeline of those two kinds of events as well but you, you are dealing with non-causal explanations. Can you tell us more about the peculiarity of this kind of explanation in science and why it is really fascinating for philosophers of science?
2: Uh, yeah, that's, that's actually part of my uh, dissertation. Uh, so I'm writing my dissertation on explanation and more specifically, as you were mentioning, non-causal kinds of explanations. Uh, and just to have, give more context to this question, uh, so usually explaining facts is also one of the key tasks of science, right? So oftentimes we just try to predict things in science, uh, but other times what we want is to give an explanation for why something happened, some phenomenon. So you might ask, why is the sky blue? And there's a, 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 a physical explanation for that. Uh, why? the dinosaurs got extinct in, or many of them got extinct in the Cretaceous. Uh, So we try to find an explanation for those events. Uh, So causal explanations, as you were mentioning, are those that appeal to some sort of uh, cause of that event. In the case of, for example, the extinction of the dinosaurs, uh, the most accepted hypothesis, it's hard to test because it's something from the past, right? Um, but the most accepted hypothesis is that there was a meteorite that uh, hit the earth and that created a lot of uh, dust and rocks in the atmosphere. Uh, and then that changed the entire climate. It was uh, a winter, like photosynthesis was impossible for plants. It was dark. So it had a huge impact in the environment. And um, of course, dinosaurs were part of the Uh, victims of this. Uh, So again, this would be a causal explanation for why something happened, right? Right. Um, And then second part of what you were asking, non-causal explanations, what are these? So um, these are explanations that do not appeal to causes, uh, but something else. So maybe an example here is helpful. Um, If you want to explain, for example, why um, beehives are divided in cells of a hexagonal shape. So that's, that's a phenomenon that we find in nature. We want to find, find an explanation for that. Uh, and then the most accepted explanation has to do with, well, it is hexagonal shapes and not some other way of dividing the space. Uh, because hexagons give you the best ratio of area of a cell to the perimeter uh, of the cell. So in that case, uh, you need the least amount of material, or bees need the least amount of material to create the cell of a hexagonal shape, um, because that gives you this, the best ratio. And that ratio about you know uh, area and perimeter is a geometrical fact. So it's not something, it's not of a causal nature. Uh, even though the the entire explanation will have Know, combination of an evolutionary reason for why that was helpful. So it's gonna contain other things as well, uh, but it contains a purely mathematical, this, in this case, geometrical fact about hexagons. And that's part of that explanation. And it's, I find it really puzzling that something which is not you know, an, an empirical thing, uh, it's really a mathematical thing that is doing the explaining in this case wow it's
1: it's very very, very interesting, and you know i i I hate to bring up Trump Trump always seems to come up in whatever we 're talking about. But we all know that we are living in an age of misinformation and fake news, where Mm -hmm. people are actively rejecting these causal explanations for why it is important to wear a mask, why it is important to social distance. So do you feel that the importance of non-causal explanations takes on an even greater importance in this day and age?
2: So it is, I think, a time where um, we have this clash between scientific evidence, and politics. Uh, And that's, I think, one of the reasons why philosophy of science is of some relevance, right, to to society. Uh, Because, you know, scientists themselves, they might just be focusing on their research. Uh, In the case of coronavirus, for example, uh, they're trying to find out what are the ways it gets uh, from one person to another. Uh, but then, you know, scientists cannot make policies. It's up to politicians to make those rules and those laws. Um, so it's really, it's really important for, I think, for the general public to give the idea that, well, there is strong evidence that backs up these claims that scientists have come up with. Uh, and then for politicians to adopt those or not, Uh, Of course, that's gonna be a different matter. Uh, But I think part of, again, part of what I think philosophers of science are interested in is bridging this gap between what is the research saying? uh, And then what's the general public thinking? What are politicians thinking and so on? Um, So I think, yeah, in in the case of non-causal explanations, uh, it's a different case. Um, there are not many instances of of those examples as well, so maybe um, it will be definitely di- different from the coronavirus case, but uh, yeah, it, it also falls into the same area
0: i guess I guess I have a two part question for you sure. um, uh, you know that there are many scientists, very famous scientists as well, who might be a bit dismissive of philosophy or philosophy of science as well, um, including, say, St- Stephen Hawking or some other prominent f- scientists as well. Uh-huh. And ha- how? what would you ha- say to maybe some of those more skeptical people of the activity of philosophy? Uh-huh. And I guess the second part of this question would be, Why trust science, especially um, in this day of age of disinformation and misinformation spread by propaganda? Why trust science?
2: That is, I think, a key question. And again, we started talking a little bit about the methodology of science. There's something about the methodology that makes science uh, really unique in terms of the amount of knowledge we have been able to achieve Uh, has increased incredibly since the uh, wake of science. Um, But it's true that there have been some voices that they they think that maybe philosophers don't have any important things to say here. Uh, I remember a quote from, uh, or at least attributed to uh, the physicist, um, Richard Feynman. Uh, He used to say that, so, philosophy of science is to scientists what ornithology is to birds.
0: Wait, hold on. Uh, <laughs> Ornithol- ornitholo- sorry, ornithology is to birds. What's that about?
2: Right. So, ornithology is the study of birds, oh, okay. uh, of classifying birds, <laughs> and so on. So, of course, birds don't really care about ornithology, <laughs> the science of 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 the study of birds, they will just keep doing what they do, right?
0: You you don't know, maybe some of them do.
2: (laughs) If only they knew, probably they would benefit from that. Um, (laughs) But uh, so again, the idea here would be that scientists really don't care about what philosophers of science, which are those who are looking at how science works, how, what uh, kind of things are happening in science. Uh, presumably they don't care because they are just doing their research and whatever thing that philosophers come up with is not relevant for them. Uh, And I think that captures a sentiment which is uh, widespread in science. But again, I don't think it's uh, the only option there. I think uh, actually many scientists, maybe not most of them, but uh, at least many prominent scientists have been interested in Philosophical questions, if you wish. So those are methodological questions. Why, uh, why are we, um, why do we trust science? That was one of the questions you were uh, giving. So, and to be honest, I think Feynman himself uh, engaged in a lot of discussions about, you know, what is science? How does it work? So in effect, I think he was doing philosophy of science as well.
0: Yeah. um, It's interesting because um, perhaps not at the ordinary level of science, but when revolutions happen, for example, switch from one geometrical system, say Euclidean geometry, to non-Euclidean geometries as Einstein did, there are uh, huge philosophical uh, discussions going on that actually ensure that this thing actually happens. Um, So you could make a good case of great advancements actually coming from uh, the philosophy of science and not necessarily only science itself of just performing experiments with the same apparatus, Uh conceptually speaking, for example. That's really fascinating. So we are actually a bit towards the end of this um, episode. It's been really nice having you on our show.
1: Yeah, Same thank here. you so much, Erlance. It's it's been, it's been a fascinating conversation. Now, we would like to ask if you have any social media or a website that you'd like to share with our audience today.
2: Sure. Um, you can find me on Western University philosophy department, uh, one of the profiles there for all the grad students and as well in the Rothman Institute of Philosophy website, uh, which is an institute here at Western and uh, I am part of, of that institute. Uh, again, you can find my profile over there, things about me, how to get in touch with me and so on. Very good, thank you so much.
0: Okay, great. Well, I'm really happy you were able to join us. Uh, I think I've, I've been really meaning to have this episode with you because well we, we had to. Uh, so, all right, so this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was Neam Clifford. We've been speaking with Elance Chiberia, and this episode was produced by me as well. If you would like to be involved with the show or get co- in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at Western Radio, 94.9 FM. You may also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, um, selected podcast episodes have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful night.